I'm Angela Ross, and this is SoCal Voices. In recent weeks, we've seen numerous headlines about efforts to smooth over or erase some of the painful and brutal history of the making of America, especially the history of this country's treatment of African Americans and the ongoing fights for equity and justice. How this remake, this distortion of history, threatens America's multicultural democracy is discussed in the book The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement, written by Hajar Yazdiha, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Southern California. Hajar Yazdiha, welcome to SoCal Voices. Thank you so much, Angela. I'm so excited to be here. Glad to have you here. You are a second-generation Iranian-American. How has your background informed your interest in sociology generally and the intersections of history, politics, and race? Oh my gosh, it's such a great question. I I think biography shapes so many of the ways that we view the world and the things that we end up doing. And so for me, a question that goes into origin stories is just right up my alley. So thank you for that. I would say that, you know, the sociological lens is so much about understanding our place in the world, understanding ourselves, not just as individuals, but as social beings who are shaped by all of these larger socio-historical context, you know, longer histories, the political and cultural forces around us. And for me, you know, growing up in the States, I was actually, you know, I say I'm second generation because I did grow up in the States, but technically I count as 1.5 generation, which means that I wasn't born in the States. I was actually born in Berlin, Germany. And if you come to the States before you're seven, then it's considered 1.5 generation. It's sort of a, a clunky terminology, so I don't use it often. But I think it actually has been more critical because my little sister, who's five years younger than me, was born in the United States and actually it just has sort of experienced the world a little bit differently. I think there's something about being a first child, about being the kind of cultural navigator, doing a lot of the translation. You know, I think about the fact that even celebrating Christmas is an idea that I had because I learned about it. All my friends were doing it in school and I came home and I said, okay, so we have to do this Christmas thing. This is how we're going to do it. You have to have a tree. You have to have the presents. And so, you know, my parents played along and I think a lot of, for me, the sociological piece comes in to the fact that they always really pushed this critical lens where because they were political activists in Iran, because they always were asking these larger questions about society and the type of world that we wanted, that they they really put that in me. That was something that they really emphasized was that enlightenment is liberation. And it pushed me not only to pursue higher education, but to pursue a career path where I would be spending my life asking those big questions. Wow, that is that is dynamic. That was like your foundation. So what was the path to studying specifically this intersection of politics and civil rights as it goes to the U.S. civil rights movement? Yes. Well, I think that's the big question because, you know, I'm an Iranian immigrant. I, you know, I'm neither white nor black. And here I am studying the history of black civil rights in the U.S. and specifically how it's been co-opted by right wing groups. And I say right in the preface that for me, my journey to having the specific interest in American racial politics is as somebody who navigated it through this kind of in-between and a growing understanding that the immigrant experience in the United States 
is one that is shaped directly through anti-Blackness, is shaped through the racial hierarchy, where upward mobility has historically been the story of aspirational whiteness, you know, of pursuing proximity to white resources, to white status, which by its very nature means that a lot of times non-white immigrant groups are positioning themselves against Black Americans. So, you know, for me, that big awakening really came in my undergraduate years. And I was an English major, which usually surprises people because the social sciences are quite different from the humanities in a lot of ways. We're really, we think about ourselves as scientists that are studying social forces. And I, as an English major, was so interested in questions of identity and really thinking about who we are and what shapes us and why it matters. And for me, some of the most foundational thinkers were really social scientists in their own right. Folks like W.E.B. Du Bois, Audre Lorde, James Baldwin. And they were the thinkers that brought me to the histories of Black thought, which ultimately to me seemed like the future. To me, those felt like the most transformative and liberatory ways of thinking about the social world. So I'd say that's that's sort of the path that brought me to thinking about civil rights, although there's a much larger story about specifically the questions that I take up in the book and, you know, particularly the moment that made me start looking into the co-optations of civil rights memory. Mm -hmm. In your book, you do talk about how, I I guess since about the 80s, there's just been this growing embrace among many conservatives uh, of the the tenets or principles of the civil rights movement, which focuses almost exclusively on the I have a dream Martin Luther King versus the more pointed critiques he made about the lack of equity in U.S. society, uh, about the immorality of the Vietnam War, about his frustration with uh, good people, to use his term, white moderates and clergy and others who were more concerned with keeping the peace as opposed to really achieving justice for African-Americans. And and I really want you to talk about that premise uh, in your book. What is that about? Where does that come from? And, And how do we experience it and analyze it so we can see through that and get to where we need to be to have a better society? Yes, that's the big question. I mean, I think initially when I talk about the book and I I talk about how it's sort of interrogating this mainstream idea that Dr. King only cared about colorblindness, you know, that his I have a dream speech was the only representation of his political philosophy. A lot of times I'll get a question that's sort of like, well, what's so wrong with that, right? I mean, what's so bad about remembering a Dr. King who was focused on love and who cared more about the content of your character than the color of your skin? Why is that a bad thing? And what I tell folks is that For one thing, it misrepresents what he stood for because he did actually have a much more radical legacy that was highly critical of, like you said, the white moderate, of incrementalism, of believing in, you know, a a sort of inclusion rather than critiquing a larger system. But also that he wasn't only opposed to racism, he was deeply opposed to economic exploitation, which meant that he was really critiquing capitalism, especially in the last years of his life. And he was critiquing American foreign policy. He was critiquing militarism and imperialism. He called America the greatest purveyor of violence. And it's that radical king, that inconvenient king that's been whitewashed from the record. Some folks say that he's been defanged in popular memory. And I think that's right. And the story that the book shows is exactly how that happens historically. And it takes us back 
to the institutionalization of Dr. King through the King National Holiday. And this is a moment, if you're not familiar, your listeners, this is a moment when Reagan has been really grappling with a lot of political pressure to establish the King National Holiday, despite the fact that he personally does not like King, has been very vocally opposed to King and his politics and civil rights more generally. And because of political pressures, he sort of concedes, but he says that he's going to sign the King National Holiday into law while behind closed doors writing letters to his angry political allies, assuring them that the version of King that we're going to commemorate is one that will represent colorblindness and individualism. We're going to treat racism as a figment of the past, as if it is over, so that we can move on to this neoliberal era where we can really celebrate the free market. We can celebrate American exceptionalism and the idea that anyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So it's in that making of the King holiday that we get some of the initial co-optations that come to take hold because essentially he's establishing in popular memory a version of King that can be used to claim as it will over time, the King himself would have opposed affirmative action, that he would have opposed the Voting Rights Act, you know, that he would oppose racial education that makes white students feel guilty. And this is why in present day, it's so easy to see efforts like the kind of moral panic around critical race theory or the banning of books and to think that it's just a product of the Trump era. But unfortunately, the Trump era is, you know, just a symptom of something that has been brewing for a much longer time. And so I think taking that historical context, looking at it over 40 years, paints a sort of eerie story of how these strategies have taken root and really grown since the 1980s. One of the things I've observed over uh, this period that you're speaking of is, and even before uh, this period, we seem to be stuck in this cycle of backlash. Some people call it white lash, you know, whenever there's any sort of uh, advancement. Um, or success, a movement forward in terms of granting more rights and having more equity in society, specifically for Black Americans. There seems to be just a special, special irritation among some people with with Black people getting ahead, Mm -hmm. Um, not even getting ahead, just getting some equity in the society that's been laid out in the table set for for certain other people that that we see happen over and over and over again. Uh, There are those who would say that the reason you got Trump was because you had Obama. I mean, it was just, that's the kind of thing we've seen lurching through our, our culture. How can we get people to get past that? I mean, do, do are we ever going to acknowledge as a nation what has happened to Black people, what this country did to Black people and why things are the way they are so we can move forward in a realistic and authentic way, not the, you know, overly sanitized, sugar-coated way that we've, that we've seen um, in recent decades? Yeah, that's the big question, right? I mean, that's the one that I really grapple with. It's the one that I I try to talk about in the conclusion of the book, although I acknowledge, especially as a sociologist who really understands the complexity of all of the social processes around us, there's Mm -hmm. never going to be a, a sort of rosy or perfect package that I can offer as the happy ending here. But one of the things that I always say, especially as a scholar of social movements more generally, is that social progress is never linear. I think that's something that Black communities know deeply because they have been at the forefront of resistance to revisionist histories for centuries. I mean, they are really the ones that carry the true authentic history in their families, in their stories, you know, in their art. 
they are the ones that we have to thank for the fact that complete authoritarianism has not already taken over. And I also say that historical reckonings and reactionary backlash are really bedfellows. So they always go hand in hand. We can never expect to make progress without backlash. And I think the question is always, okay, but is it always that we're going to take one step forward and two steps back? My take is that if we can begin to sort of, you know, crack some of the veneer that's been placed on top of American history, I think this is the sort of work that Nicole Hannah-Jones has attempted to do with the 1619 Project, for example. It's something that the King Center is doing constantly. Bernice King is constantly calling out these co-optations of Dr. King. You know, even right now we're seeing Reverend Barber who's resurrecting the Poor People's Campaign, which Dr. King really set about doing in the last year of his life. He was looking for creating this multiracial cross-class coalition that would begin to garner the power of the people from below to work toward the redistribution of resources, work toward amending some of the deep inequality that was taking shape. So I think once we accept that backlash will always be part of the process, And we start to, I think, work with some persistence and some consistency. I really do believe we can create some change. And, you know, it's like I said, I truly believe that the enlightenment piece is so critical because when you open your eyes and see the forest, then you can be free. And it's like Dr. King himself said, right? You know, he said, I criticize America because I love her. Mm -hmm. I want her to stand as a moral example to the world. And so we have to dig into these messy histories. We can't be afraid of the discomfort that arises and the difficult conversations because truly there is no reconciliation without reckoning. Exactly, exactly. And my concern is that if we don't really do this work, the digging deep that needs to be done and the facing of reality that needs to happen, America's going to implode from within. I mean, we do have our foreign adversaries, sure, but they are savvy and they can see that this is a chronic problem in the U.S. that we have not addressed fully. And um, it's something that um, they can take advantage of too and, and cause us to to turn on ourselves and possibly destroy our multicultural democracy. And that's something we really have to value and hold on to. And we, it's, it's what I, I usually say, you can't hate each other while, while doing it. You gotta, you mm-hmm. gotta work together and, and fix it. I want you to take a moment and read a short passage from your book. There, there's so much richness in there. And I know this is hard to pick one thing. I wonder if you could check something that really speaks to you each time you read the passage or each time someone talks to you about your work that just continues to hit you uh, just consistently as, yeah, that's the nugget. That's the thing I want people to really get, or that's the thing that really resonates with me. Do you have a passage like that you're willing to share? I do. And you know what? That That's always a, you know, that's tough because we just, <laughs> we love all our darlings and Picking just one is so difficult, but yes, I I have a short passage that I think well represents some of the core questions that I'm, I'm trying to get to in the book. Great. All right. This comes at the beginning of chapter two, which is a chapter about the mobilization of collective memory. Mm -hmm. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. This was the amount of time it took a white police officer to kill George Floyd by kneeling on his neck as he begged for breath in the dying light of a late May day. Bystanders pleaded with police to let Floyd breathe as he lay stomach down, face twisted in terror against the pavement, calling for his mama in his final moments. 
Later, we would come to learn that Floyd's mother had passed away two years prior, a devastating footnote, a doting Black father killed for allegedly using a counterfeit $20 bill to buy cigarettes. 17-year-old Darnella Frazier captured the horrific event on her cell phone. She posted the video on Facebook that night to share her grief, unknowingly setting in motion waves of irrevocable change. In the coming weeks, protests erupted in over 2,000 cities in all 50 states and more than 60 countries around the world. Frazier's lawyer, Seth Coben, said, if it wasn't for her bravery, presence of mind and steady hand, and her willingness to post the video on Facebook and share her trauma with the world, all four of those police officers would still be on the streets, possibly terrorizing other members of the community. She's the Rosa Parks of her generation. Rosa Parks. Just one month prior, in April 2020, a much smaller series of protests captured media attention. Mostly white conservatives rallied in six cities around the country against the stay-at-home orders implemented in the wake of the deadly coronavirus, a pandemic the world hadn't seen since 1918. President Trump cheered them on, taking to Twitter in a series of emphatic tweets, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, liberate Virginia, and save your great Second Amendment. It's under siege. Right-wing commentator and Trump advisor Stephen Moore also appeared on multiple media outlets to express support for the protesters as contemporary incarnates of a civil rights hero. I call these people modern-day Rosa Parks. They are protesting against injustice and a loss of liberties, he told the Washington Post. In these invocations of the past, both a Black teenager catalyzing collective action for racial justice and white conservatives mobilizing against public health orders can be Rosa Parks. This chapter demonstrates that political uses of the civil rights movement are prevalent among mobilizing groups across the political spectrum, from conservative family values coalitions to progressive abolitionist groups. So I'll just stop there, but you know, the chapter wow. really goes on to lay out these trajectories of the way that, you know, civil rights memory gets co-opted in well-intentioned mm -hmm. and also really malicious ways over time. And, you know, going back to what you said about this question of how we move toward the future together, I think one of the things that I show is that it's not just that we're polarized in our political beliefs. You know, when you come to find that this revisionist history has taken root in such a profound way, you realize that we're actually living in opposing social realities. And so we, it's really like this rubber band, right? That's stretched between these oppositional social realities. And if we're going to continue this way, we're going to snap. So I think that's really one of the big takeaways for me is that we have to confront the past if we want democracy to last. Exactly. Exactly. What has been the reaction of, and, and response uh, to your work from some of your colleagues I know that looking at the book and, and talking to some people about your work, you have some pretty heavy hitters who are very uh, impressed with the work that you've done. Uh, these are folks who are known scholars uh, of the civil rights movement and social and political um, in history, race, politics. I wonder the folks who are not so well known, uh, people who you just talk to casually, what are they saying to you about this, this work you've done? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've been really grateful for the support, especially like you said, of the folks that completely inspired my work. You know, Alden Morris, he's just one of the most eminent scholars of civil mm -hmm. rights, of W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, of racial history. And so I think to to have them 
on my team and sort of rooting me on really does mean the world. I think it is really the other folks that you wonder about, right? Because I think there there are plenty of people who will smile and congratulate you on writing a book. And then, you know, you don't really know what they say behind closed doors. I do think in sociology, there has been a lot of internal reckoning over the past few years. And I've seen other academic fields deal with it, um, you know, go through the kind of messiness of deciding who do we want to be? You know, what is the purpose of our work? And for sociologists, particularly, I, if, if we're scholars of society, if we're scholars of humans as social beings, it strikes me as quite odd if we don't intend for our work to do something. And I can certainly understand, you know, the, the sort of traditional scholars who believe that it's an intellectual exercise in itself to theorize and, and to sit and talk to one another. But for me, I feel like if I've been shaped by the world that I live in, and then I'm approaching that world and studying it and producing something that I think says something about it, well, then yes, I hope it will actually have some sort of positive change. I hope it will impact someone. And I think those are some of the more uncomfortable discussions about public scholarship, about scholar activism, and moving away from a really false belief that social science, or frankly, any kind of science will ever really be objective. That's truly impossible. And I actually think acknowledging that makes it better science. So that's that's one of the harder parts. And I'm, you know, I'm about to go to our annual conference. And so I will report back and let you know if I get more feedback. But I think overwhelmingly, it's been a positive response because you'll notice I'm not really poo-pooing any, any theories in the book. If anything, I never think it's useful to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. If anything, I'm sort of making a claim that we need to talk about power more. There's no way you can talk about social movements, specifically the civil rights movement, without understanding how power works, how it's systemic, how it doesn't live only within the state, which I think is the common way we think about social movements and politics is groups that are vying for inclusion in the state or trying to change the state. But no, I mean, I think there's something so much more transformative that's going on here, so much more liberatory. And it's one that that doesn't think about the state as the only source of a human future, that we can actually have something that's greater than our state institutions and that the real power, the real, I think, point of life is in the life from below, the life within our communities with one another. So that's that's the part that I'm really passionate about. How are your students responding to your work? Oh my gosh, they've been incredible. And they just in general are really inspirational for me. I have such a, I have a, just a shtick about how I think Gen Z gets a bad rap. And, you know, there's so <laughs> yeah. many just stories and complaints about how lazy and whiny they are. They aren't. I mean, maybe there's a, a sort of self-selection because I do teach classes on, you know, grassroots mobilization and social movements. I do think I, I probably get students who are already a little bit more interested in the social world and social change, but they come with open minds and open hearts and really wide visions of what's possible. And COVID in particular, since this is a project I'm working on right now, is interviewing Gen Z activists, trying to understand how they imagine the future in light of what they've gone through coming of age during COVID. Because of COVID, I think they have a really strong understanding that what we've been doing is just not going to work anymore, right. that that is not the way forward. And so my only hope is that, you know, those of us and other generations can really amplify and build them up and give them the resources and space to actually achieve those dreams, because those are the dreams that, you know, my, that's the world my children are going to live in. So, Absolutely. you know, that's what really gives me hope. 
That's fantastic. So what other projects do you have uh, on your plate? The, the book is out and it's doing well. What else uh, are you working on? Yeah. I mean, the book itself inspired me so much in thinking about what true visionaries look like. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm actually working on a new book project and I'm trying to think about the different arenas where folks are trying to create change in ways that perhaps we wouldn't have really thought about before. And then I'm thinking about them critically. So for example, I'm looking at influencers and specifically social change influencers. Is this purely a kind of performative space on social media? You know, you're getting paid by advertisers and doing these sort of sponsored posts. Or is there something deeper where you can actually change minds through that form of influence? I'm also looking at the world of psychedelics, which, you know, always sort of raises an eyebrow, yeah, but I'm very fascinated in it because I think there's, there's something really interesting about changing, you know, your mind from within. And then there's, you know, a Michael Pollan book. I think it's literally called how to change your mind. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking about it in a more sociological way. And then yeah, also looking at social entrepreneurs, looking at filmmakers. Um, and so all of these different arenas where I think people are doing really exciting and new things, and then trying to understand if if there are sort of nuggets in there that we could scale up and, and use in our everyday lives. Fantastic. Fantastic. Where can folks find you online and on social media? Yes. Yeah, so you can find me on my website. It's www.hajar, H-A-J-A-R yazdiha.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, which I will continue to call Twitter. And it's at, <laughs> yes, it's Twitter to me forever. It's at Haj, H-A-J, Yazdiha. Um, and then also on Instagram, I'm at Prof Hajar Yazdiha. Wow, such a delight to chat with you, Professor. Uh, so much insight and uh, real, real value in the work that you're doing. And you can and you will make positive change. This is just a delight. I highly recommend everyone go out now and get her book. It is absolutely fantastic. Professor Hajar Yazdiha, thank you so much for speaking thank with you. me today on thank SoCal Thank you so Voices. much, Angela. It's been an honor. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to SoCal Voices. Show your support with a financial contribution. Visit SoCalVoices.com support. For information about sponsoring SoCal Voices episodes, send an email to contact us at SoCalVoices.com.